The Jeep Wrangler 4xe. It's electrified. So you can boogie woogie woogie up a mountain, over creeks, or boogie woogie woogie through a desert where you get bit by a pit viper. So you boogie woogie woogie back to camp and ask your friends if they'll suck the snake venom out when they say no. You boogie woogie woogie to the nearest hospital for a dose of anti-venom and boogie woogie woogie your way to a full recovery. The electrified Jeep Wrangler 4xe. Learn more at jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Hey guys, and welcome to Happy, Sad, Confused. This week, we ring in 2017 with two talents just getting started in their respective careers. Janelle Monet is already a music superstar, but now she's proven to be an actor to be reckoned with thanks to two stellar performances in Moonlight and Hidden Figures. And there's no filmmaker with a brighter future than Damien Chazelle, the man behind Whiplash, and the fantastic new musical La La Land. Join us on this first episode of 2017. I'm Josh Horowitz, and alongside me is Sammy. Hi! It's a new year, Sammy! We did it! We made, we're still alive! <laughs> Assuming. <laughs> um, welcome to the show, guys. Welcome to another year of Happy, Sad, Confused. Very excited to uh, launch this year's uh, ep- first episode of the year, rather, with uh, two talents that I'm, I'm super uh, um, excited to have on the show for the first time. Um, a little bit later on, we have Damien Chazelle, who is, um, I think he's like 31, obnoxiously. He really? He's like super young. Actually, oh. I think he's about the same age as Janelle. Um, but but some, for a filmmaker, you think of them as being a little older. And Damien is um, – his last two films have just been amazing. He, of course, had Whiplash a couple years back with Miles Teller, uh, won an Oscar for J.K. Simmons. Uh, that was – I vividly remember seeing that film on the opening night of Sundance and it blew everybody away. And he's followed it up with this um, – kind of transcendent musical that, that so many people have fallen in love with. It's certainly either my favorite movie of the year or really close to the top. Um, and it, of course, stars Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. And it is um, kind of an homage to old musicals uh, of the past. And uh, we're going to get into a lot of his influences and his uh, thought process behind he making... He likes music. He, he Clearly. He's into music. Likes his jazz. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we'll get to Damien in a second. But speaking of music, um, this first guest on the show today um, is somebody you know probably probably mostly for their uh, musical career, Janelle Monae. Janelle Monae. So cool to have her in. Um, she uh, has had a banner. She had a banner in 2016 thanks to two films, her very first two films. That's got to be said. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's hard to think of another actor that started um, their career in such a uh, fine fashion. Uh, her first f- film was uh, Moonlight, which we've done uh, covered a ton on this podcast and justifiably so. Mm-hmm. She's fantastic in it. Um, she shares a lot of screen time with Mahershala Ali. And, um, you know, if you don't know about Moonlight by now, where have you been? It's basically— You haven't been listening to Happy Side Confused. Yeah, you're worthless That's for to sure. me. <laughs> um, no, but it's, um, you know, it's probably the most critically uh, praised film of the year um, and really captures uh, this kind of slice of life, this outsider, uh, this uh, this boy who kind of we see in three different stages of his life as he, um, you know, feels like he's on the outs and is maybe not welcomed by his community and the people around him. Um, and Janelle is a, a huge part of that film. Uh, she also is in a new movie called Hidden Figures, which is kind of a bigger movie. It's a more mainstream kind of Hollywood movie, uh, but a real crowd pleaser. I, when I saw it, I was like, okay, this is going to make a ton of money because it, it just works. It's a, It tells the story of um, th- three, primarily three uh, mathematicians um, who, uh, African-American women, this is a true story, who basically helped um, get Americans in space. I couldn't believe this was a true story because- 
it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and it's it incredible. It's incredible, and she's she's really great in it. She pops off the screen as do all performers: Taraji P Henson and Octavia Spencer. Oh, yeah, what a trio! They're, no, Are they're, you kidding they're me? Great. I'm dead serious. And, they, and you throw in Kevin Costner in there. You, you, you got something for everybody. He's the cherry on top. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Janelle uh, was uh, kind enough to come by the podcast studio to chat about this amazing year, and just also her her attitude about art, and um, and she's just like a very positive, poised. Um, artistic force. You feel like, you know, smarter around her because she kind of just, um, you know, she exudes, um, I don't know, positivity and uh, a great attitude. And, uh, you know, she's uh, she's someone to really, I think, watch in, in whatever artistic field she pursues. She's clearly already conquered music and she's well on her way in acting. So great to catch her in this kind of cool moment in her life. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy this first conversation. On the other side, as I said, we're going to have one of the best new filmmakers out there, Damien Chazelle. But for now, uh, check out Moonlight, check out Hidden Figures and enjoy this conversation with Janelle Monet. And say Sammy. I love her. This is going to be great. I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> it is good to see you again, Janelle. Thanks oh, so much for coming in today. Great to see you too. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm a huge fan of uh, both of these films. I've This has become the default uh, Moonlight podcast. We've had Mahershala on and Naomi and now you. I mean, I just love this cast. And it's great to also represent this uh, this quality film, Hidden Figures, which is an, another amazing ensemble. So congratulations on both of them. Thank you. I feel very thankful and, and honored to be a part of uh, both families. So so talk to me first of all, first of all about um, the fact that these are your first two films, which is it's not supposed to go down this way, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, and I know that acting is something that it's not something like you just dabbled in. Oh, I'm going to try acting. This was something that seriously always was on the agenda. Um, but that being said, this is, has to boggle your mind. You know how, how these industries work um, that you've gotten this kind of opportunity in this first year of acting. Um, just give me a sense of where your head's at in, in terms of your satisfaction and happiness with how it's all kind of played out so far. Yeah, I feel like we are in a very exciting time for for film and for storytelling. And a lot of people, you know, you're one of them who who may know this, but I did study acting. I went to the American Musical and Dramatics Academy. So I've always had a deep love for theater and the arts and music. And um, when I read both scripts, Moonlight and Hidden Figures, uh, I, I had a strong reaction. I, I was excited. I was moved. Uh, I think I cried several times while reading both scripts because they both deal with um, the other. Yep. The person who is oftentimes uh, outcast or discriminated against uh, because of their sexual orientation, uh, race, gender. Uh, oftentimes uncelebrated. I mean, here you have a film, Hidden Figures, and 50 years later we're telling the story of these women, these mathematicians who were responsible for getting our first Americans into space. Right. Uh, and then Chiron, the little black boy, uh, who was poor, uh, you know, also searching, you know, for his sexual identity. And uh, he had a pretty rough, rough life in I know those stories of so many young boys like that. So to be able to um, support, um, uh, you know, these uh, important stories, uh, important stories for our culture, for humanity, uh, to help bring us together um, is just a blessing. And I'm so happy that young girls and boys and, you know, of my generation and millennials uh, will be able to have these stories and, and watch them 
And as they're struggling and going through their own obstacles, uh, they'll find, you know, a glimmer of hope uh, sure. through these characters. Can you give me a sense of sort of growing up, you grew up in Kansas City, as I understand it. Did you feel like an outsider? Did you feel like someone that didn't fit in when you were a kid? I knew at an early age what I wanted to do. I knew that storytelling uh, and being um, using my music and art to bring people together, to uh, champion something um, bigger than just myself. Like, I'm not a selfish performer. Uh, and I, I, I found that out early on, that I, my purpose was to uh, give. And, and whether that's inspiring, whether that's motivating, whether um, that's uplifting, uh, whatever that is, I, I, I figured that out at an early age. And so, yeah, that made me a little different because while people were, you know, my friends were out playing or partying, I was very serious about my craft and about um, music and, and about theater and studying and wanting to figure out how do I get out of Kansas um, to make sure that the rest of the world uh, hears, hears the messages that, that I have been, uh, I, I guess, chosen to uh, relay. So what, what did your family, your parents make of this kind of obsession, this kind of like this need to um, share your art and entertain, et cetera? Were they did that? Did they relate to that on any level? I mean, they were working class people, as I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a very hard working class family. My mom was a janitor, her last occupation. Um, you know, my father served in the armed forces. He was also a post office worker, a janitor, and uh, they wore uniforms every single day. You know, we, we, they, we were, you know, living check to check and, and I didn't know, you know, we were considered to be in the poor class because, I had a very happy upbringing. My parents never tried to force me to uh, uh, be anything other than what my heart uh, desired and very supportive. I remember us packing up and going to talent showcases and uh, I'm, I was an international thespian so I was competing, uh, doing monologue competitions, Shakespearean classes, uh, writing short stories for the Coterie Theater, the Young Playwrights Roundtable in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, they just loved that I loved the arts so much. They knew as long as my grades were were, were great, uh, I pretty much could get away with anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. And talking about those kind of like all these very interesting, cool early experiences, that must have been like you saw the way out. I mean, not that you'd want to escape your environment. You probably loved where you grew up, but you also saw another world out there that you wanted to experience. And this was a way to get out there and to experience the rest of the world. Yes, I knew that education and um, focus uh, and the passion for 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 my craft uh, was going to lead me, you know, out of out of Kansas. I mean, I love my hometown so much. So many incredible um, people there who have helped uh, get me to this point. Um, uh, however, I think it's important that kids uh, strive to be better than their parents. Right. You know, I think that's how we thrive as a society, how we evolve as people. If we're, you know, when we're constantly um, uh, uh, looking at uh, our examples and trying to figure out how, how can we perfect that a little more. My, my parents always encouraged me to go see the world. We didn't get the opportunity to do that. You know, we, you know, my mom had me at a very young age and I'm forever indebted and thankful because she didn't have to have me. 
You know, she it's it's, it's not something um, that I'm owed to have sure. this life. So if I'm going to be here, make the most of it. And not to be limited by you know quote unquote society's expectations or, or what they what they want what they think you should be right yeah. and that's one of the themes I think that will resonate uh, out of a subject like hidden figures is is you know I mean these young girls African American or not I mean women as you know are not necessarily put in the you know the math class the science class they're not they're not told to this day I think to pursue that. And there's no justifiable reason for it. And I think part of the, the, the hope of a film like this and this kind of, these kind of conversations is just to expand our, our minds and be a little bit more open to possibility. Yes, I, I think it's so important that young girls specifically uh, go see hidden figures. You know, bring your girls to go see hidden figures because there, there is uh, at a young age a push on us oftentimes, not with every young girl, but to use our beauty you know, to get ahead. Um, we're objectified at an early age. And I, I love the arts. And I will say that I personally uh, stopped pursuing math and science, even though I wanted to be an astronaut. Mae Jemison was my hero. So for me, I think it's just important that all girls, boys, human beings at a young age uh, know their options. Yeah. And if you want to be in STEM, it shouldn't be looked at as a negative or an uncool thing. I mean, these women got our astronauts into space. Without the help of Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, and the human computers, as they um, were called, or the colored computers, as they were called during that era, we would not have achieved that extraordinary uh, mission. You yeah. know, you, Come on, you talk about something that had never been done before, putting a man in a rocket and shooting him up to space. You know, mathematicians, scientists, engineers did that. So, you know, that's why we have such great history um, because of people like them. And I think that we constantly need to keep pushing um, the importance of having young girls uh, uh, join STEM because it's declining. I can only imagine the um, amount of satisfaction you got out of participating in a project like this, uh, having read up on you, um, in that you were like a sci-fi geek growing up. I, I was, and I mean that's not surprising looking at some of the the titles and subject matters of your of your work. Yeah. Um, give me a sense of sort of like when that kicked in. What were you <laughs> into? Because this yeah. is I feel like this is a subject we can we can bond over. What's <laughs> what were you into? Yeah, I've always been a sci-fi geek nerd. I mean, it started really with. Twilight Zone. Oh. And my grandmother and I would watch it all the time because we lived with my grandmother for a while. So when my mom was at work or she was out, that's what we watched yeah. on her black and white TV. Um, and I just remember writing stories about aliens coming and knocking on my grandmother's door because she was such a giving person. Like you could rob 10 banks and if you apologize, my grandmother would... <laughs> let you eat at the table. She was such a forgiving spirit, you right. know, Christian Christian woman. Uh, sometimes to a fault she gave. And I just thought it was interesting to think about what would happen if aliens really did come to Kansas, knock on our door. Well, my grandmother let them in. So I, would, I was one of those kids who would write stories about that. Gotcha. Um, and be fascinated with it. Uh, of course, I... I 
you know, as I got older, I started to get more and more into science fiction. So movies like The Matrix, of course, Star Wars. Uh, I then got deeper into sci-fi and I started to um, read up on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, the godfather of science fiction. You know, this German expressionist film, it was silent, but clearly it spoke out to me. It was just dealing with the haves and the have-nots, the oppressed and the oppressor. And that's a story that we still um, can relate to in these times. So I just felt so much, a wealth of inspiration from Fritz Lang. Um, you know, I'm into shows right now like Black Mirror, Westworld. Westworld. Oh my gosh, one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just love the possibilities in the future. You know, it's limited possibilities. I mean, you can solve for certain um, uh, problems in medicine through science fiction. You know, it's it's thinking forward, and I think we have to think about the future and how we can make it better for the for the next generation. Did you catch the new Blade Runner trailer that just dropped? I did not. When did it come out? Did so, it just come? Just, I've been following it, though. Just in the last day. It, see, I've been so busy. I yeah. cannot wait to see that trailer. And then I heard uh, that one of my favorites, Sam uh, Esmail, who yes. did Mr. Robot. That's one of my favorite yeah, shows. What is he developing He's, now? Metropolis, right? Yes. Call me, Sam. <laughs> Nobody knows about Metropolis that's acting more than me. I'm going to tell you that right now. So I'm I'm excited about that show, that series. Um, And I'm ready to also see African-Americans in the future in more sci-fi roles, not just the sidekick, but leading roles. Absolutely. So I'm excited about being a part of that that wave. This is Happy Sack Confused. We'll be right back after this. The Jeep Wrangler 4xe. It's electrified. So you can boogie, woogie, woogie up a mountain, over creeks, or boogie, woogie, woogie through a desert where you get bit by a pit viper. So you boogie, woogie, woogie back to camp and ask your friends if they'll suck the snake venom out when they say no. You boogie, woogie, woogie to the nearest hospital for a dose of antivenom and boogie, woogie, woogie your way to a full recovery. The electrified Jeep Wrangler 4xe. Learn more at Jeep.com. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. So have you, uh, you know, we, t- we talked a little bit about sort of diving into acting in, in uh, you know, a, a serious way in the last year with, the, with these two films. What, what had been coming down the pike for you in recent years? Had you been pursuing acting? Had there been offers that were just not interesting to you? Because there's some traps for, you know, musicians, quote unquote, sure. turned actors yeah. that I'm sure you were aware of that you wanted to avoid. I'm just give, yeah. give me a sense of sort of like what opportunities were there that maybe weren't exciting for you at yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I had... I had uh, been sent scripts, um, lots of really cool movies and roles. For me, I'm the type that I, I I'm the type of person that I when I when I get involved in something, I'm passionate about it, and I want to give it my full, devoted time. Like I stopped working on my album I was working on for four years um, to film Moonlight and Hidden Figures, and as an actor, someone who studied acting and. And when I got into music, I didn't take on any acting roles because I wanted people to focus on me as uh, a recording artist. I didn't want any distractions or confusion about what I was focused on, you know, what I was most passionate about. So I've, I've done the same thing with, with, with film. Um, I have not, you know, focused on, on music, even though I can do both and I I will be uh, doing both, but I did want people to uh, focus in on me as an actor and know this is something serious. You know, this is, these roles are not, uh, they were not given to me. I auditioned for them. Um, and, it's important 
that we keep the focus on hidden figures in moonlight uh, and I'm not promoting an album at the same time. And, right. you know, I, I never like how that comes across. And so I tried to make sure um, that when it was time for me to get into films that I, I one, believed in what it was that I was I was doing uh, and and that I had time to really focus in on just the film. Yeah, one gets the sense in, in hearing you talk here today and in reading about you, this isn't about, you know, extending the brand. This yeah. isn't a, this isn't a calculated yeah. thing. As, no. as, as great as it might be for your career in the end, um, this comes from a true artistic place, a, a need to express yourself in different ways. Yeah, and I, and I say this a lot. I've never looked at myself as just an actor either or just a musician. It's storytelling for me. I consider myself an artist storyteller yeah. and I want to continue to tell uh, these untold, unique, universal stories in unforgettable ways. Yeah. And you do that through music, you do that through film. Uh, and so that it's just about timing too. You know, what what when timing and preparation happens, what do they say? You know, right. you successfully are able to um, uh, get something done. So combining a couple of the topics we've discussed already, it seems inevitable, whether it's Metropolis or something else, we need to get you into a sci-fi project. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to happen. We have some um, uh, scripts in-house mm -hmm. uh, with my company, Wonderland uh, Productions, Emotion Pictures um, Productions, and uh, we have some incredible writers. Um, so we'll, we'll be taking meetings and, and, and getting those off the ground. But again, I, I just love the, the art form. I love science fiction. I think there's just... Uh, so exciting to think about, you know, the near future and what can happen. And sometimes we can improve mm -hmm. on the human race if we if we put it in sci-fi. If we put some of the things that are going on now in the future, right. all of a sudden we all start looking around and we're like, yeah, we need to change some things. Yeah. We need to change some things because we don't want to live in a dystopian future. You know, we can save it. Well, yeah, as you know, and you reference something like Black Mirror, the best sci-fi reflects kind of the issues that we're wrestling with in our time, even if it takes place in the future. Yes. Um, so talk to me a little bit about, okay, so so Moonlight you shot first, as I understand, yeah, right? Yeah, in October 2015. Okay, so um, as I said, huge fan of that one. Anybody that hasn't seen it must see it. If you've heard the buzz by now, it's just a, a remarkable piece of work and amazing performances throughout, including you and uh, you share most of your scenes with Mahershala. Yes. Who's just uh, remarkable. He's just so, man, he's just so dynamic and such a great person. Yeah. You know, incredible actor, too. He's one, he's one of the, I said this to him when he was in here. It was like, after I saw the film, I walked out of that theater just like so excited also, frankly, for him. He's one of those yes. actors you've seen in oh. other films and you're like, oh, he got the role no he needed. No one more deserves. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about just like being there first day on set. I mean, you've dream, you probably dreamed about this yeah. and like said, okay, I'm going to get there on my own time at some point. But you're in this, you know, Barry Jenkins is directing, Mahershal is opposite you. Um, did you feel nervous? What was what was going through your head? Oh, yeah. Time? I had some moments of, of, of feeling nervous because Mahershala is so um, magnificent in all that he does. And I was a huge fan um, of his work. Um House of Cards, you know, he, Benjamin Button. Sure. And this was my first film. So uh, I had, you know, pretty normal, nervous uh, bits <laughs> that happened. But I had such an incredible director with Barry Jenkins. I remember him telling me when I got on set, he said, hey, listen, Janelle, there's no such thing as making a mistake. Mm. As long as you're being truthful and honest with every moment, every decision is the right way. Yeah. And so I just relaxed in that. And I, every moment that I had with Mahershala or Chiron, little Alex um, or Ashton, uh, who phenomenal 
to two uh, very gifted uh, actors, and I think they're going to have a long career in the acting world. Um, whenever I had a scene with them, I just spoke to them in a pure, honest way, you know, like I would speak to a nephew or a cousin. Right. Because I know these characters in my personal life. So it was it was just, it felt like family, you Do, know. Does the reception to that one, to Moonlight, exceed even your wildest expectations? I mean, like you, you knew it was, it was, you obviously responded to the material, you said you cried when you read it. But the fact that, I mean, when it opened, it had this crazy per screen average and the reviews are insane and like, it's gonna clearly get a ton of awards attention already is. Um, that's just got to, I guess, validate what you saw in the script. <laughs> but give me a sense of sort of just what it feels like to see this kind of resonate in the broad way it is, which is it's a very particular story. It's a specific story. And the fact that it is resonating broadly is, is amazing. Yeah, I think for me, I've always followed my heart, you know, whether it be in music, whether it be in, you know, attending the performing arts school, uh, writing a song. I go, I go with my heart. I go with my soul clock. You know, I work on that time. Mm -hmm. And when I, like I said, when I read that script, I said, this is, this, this is the one. Yeah. This is, culture needs this. You know, humanity needs this. This film is going to bring people together. This film is going to highlight our nuances, our, our complexities, our, um, it's going to show, it's going to humanize us on screen in a way that we had not seen before. Absolutely. You know, we know the drug dealer but we don't know the drug dealer mentor. You know, we don't know the story behind the crack addict and why she, uh, who Naomi just killed that role. Yeah. Uh, her playing Chiron's mom. Why, what kind of person was she? You know, the way Naomi plays her, she humanizes her. Chiron's humanized. He's not just, it's not just about, you know, his sexuality. It's about him, a coming of age. It talks about, you know, masculinity. Yep. What are we saying about masculinity? What kind of pressure are we putting? It asks a lot of questions. It doesn't beat you over the head. And I think that is the great art. When some of my favorite artists, whether it be musicians or filmmakers, when they just ask questions, that's when I'm most uh, impressed and I'm drawn in. Yeah. You know, I don't like things to beat you over the head and... and, and uh, you know, I just followed my heart, and I'm so happy that it's touching so many people's hearts. You know, not just African American people, because this is an all African American cast. It's touching everyone. Truly. You know, young, old, Christian, non-Christian, atheist, white, black, Hispanic, you name it. I've I've seen so many people write in and come up to me and talk to me about how moved they were from this film. And I, I again, I, I just think that we need these human stories to bring us together. Well, we've all felt like the outsider. We've all looked for love that hasn't been available to us. We've all felt out of place. And that's, that's those are the themes that I think resonate Absolutely. with everybody. Absolutely. So something like Hidden Figures, which we've already talked about a little bit, but I'm, I'm curious, like one of the one of the cool things about this film that occurred to me, I mean, so it's you, it's Octavia Spencer, Taraji P. Henson, this amazing ensemble. Um, frankly, like a, a group of African-American women leading a film. Yes. Is, like how many times do we see that? A, Huge. In, in a studio film that's not frankly like a broad comedy or a, like a, th a sexual thriller or something. Like this is this is just – this is a mainstream movie that is a crowd pleaser. Um, and that – should be acknowledged and and sh we should be excited about it, I think. I mean, did that that must have occurred to you as you're on set because this is a, a different scale of filmmaking. It's a studio film, et cetera. Um, give me a sense, again, the pride for sure. you to be a part oh, of Sure. Oh, I am that. so proud. I mean, these are three African-American female 
protagonists, you know, not just one smart best friend. All three of these women are brilliant mathematicians. Uh, I go on to become my character, Miss Mary Jackson, the first African-American female uh, aerospace engineer at NASA. And my character wasn't trying to be the first black woman engineer. She simply wanted to be an engineer. She knew that she had the brain to do it, and she wanted to maximize her full potential. Right. Um, but but what's so important about this film, not just, you know, on screen, you have these, these, these black women who, of course, are beautiful, but they're being celebrated for their brilliance. Uh, and that's rare, that we are celebrated for being smart. Right. I think it's so important that we send that message out uh, that we in Hollywood, and I don't consider myself, you know, Hollywood. I'm just, again, a storyteller, storyteller artist, um, but that we are saying uh, this is important. You know, these values are still important, and we're going to put our money up to show how important they are. Right. So I think that's really cool, and that makes a great statement, and, and it makes me excited about uncovering more hidden figures. Uh, these women went through so many obstacles, but the great thing about this movie, especially during these times, they did not allow that to deter them. You know, you talk about sending a man into space, and you're a woman, a black woman, and you don't even have the right to vote. Your brothers and sisters are being lynched by the way they look at a white person. These women were brave going yeah. in every day. And I just applaud NASA for being so progressive because they were hiring minorities and women during a time where it was not popular to do that. So they didn't have the agency that we I have today. I have freedom of speech. And for my character to uh, petition the courts and and, and fight for, for her um, her right to the American dream, that's all they wanted. Yeah. They believe that everyone, you know, they have broad perspectives. They believe that everyone... Um, had a right to the American dream and, and, and had a right to uh, equal opportunity and equal footing. I'm curious because, you know, as you sit here in front of me today, and I've noticed this in, in the last time we spoke and, and seeing you in other interviews, et cetera, is you have such poise and such like a, a it seems like a wherewithal of like who you are and your place. And like, there's no like, you're not being defined by anybody else. Like you've certainly, you know, people have talked about your style and your, and your art in terms of like just charting your own path and not you don't feel like a product of somebody else some a boardroom figuring out what Chanel Monet is um I mean I, I mean I guess this goes back to maybe to the early stuff we were talking about but I just give me a sense of like where do you think that comes from like does, <laughs> is that family is that upbringing is that just some god-given whatever it is <laughs> wow well thank you um you know again I I just love being an artist and I'm thankful for creativity. I'm thankful to have an outlet. Uh, and and I'm thankful that I have a choice, you know, in, in my career. Um, there are certain uh, communities where things are decided for them. Right. And I'm just happy that I get the opportunity to decide what it is that I want to do every day I wake up. Was, was, there, was there a path that you didn't go down at some point, a choice, a compromise <laughs> that you could have made that you feel like oh, was a sure. big turning point? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I... And I have so much respect for everyone working every single day and then taking that leap and not working for anybody else and saying, I'm going to start my own company. Right. Yeah, I mean, I worked at amazing jobs like Office Depot. <laughs> <laughs> I was a maid before. Wow. Yeah, I had to uh, pay my way through college. Um, 
I uh, worked at Blockbuster. I worked as a waitress. I worked at Sam's Club. I mean, I, I you know. You put in the time. I, yeah, I put in a <laughs> lot of work. I remember living in a boarding house with six other girls. Wow. You know, selling my independent CDs um, on on uh, the library steps and giving performances in the dorm lounges in the AUC, the, uh, the Atlanta University Center in Atlanta. And I've worked. When I look at it, you know, you don't, you don't, I don't look at it as work because when you're passionate and you love what it is that you do, you're just excited about the journey. And I'm still excited about the climb. And that's what I'm most thankful for. I'm not trying to be number one. That's not my, my, my business or or my um, intentions. It's just to enjoy the climb, enjoy the experiences, experience these moments with people I love, because I believe that experiences are better shared with the people you love. If my mom and my family members and my friends can't be here as I'm, you know, promoting this film or uh, going to the premiere of Hidden Figures, um, then it's really not worth it for me, you know? And I know that we're all on borrowed time. I figured that out at an early age. And I think um, when your heroes pass on and they go to a different frequency, things come into perspective even more. And so I just want to make my time here on earth worthwhile and to create a blueprint for other young and up and coming artists who have felt or who have been told no because of their gender, because of their race, because of their dreams. I just want people to know that your dreams are valid and you don't have to take the same coordinates to reach the same destination. Your Twitter uh, icon is, is Prince. Yes. And I know he was someone that you counted as a friend. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's been so influential in so many artists' lives. Um, you know, it's it's a big question, but I but I'm, I am curious, sort of like how he influences you to this day, how he was a guidepost for you, how he remains so today. It's difficult to put into words what someone like that means. Yeah. Um, before I met him, he was a musical hero. You know, I felt like he was a part of my DNA. And when I had the opportunity to have a relationship with him, uh, he invited me uh, to to his place to to jam and and he just wanted to connect with me, um, artist to artist, and he's been a mentor to me in in so many ways, like a musical father figure. Um, I just can't express how thankful I am to have known him to have laughed with him, to have had so many um, beautiful moments um, uh, with him. You know, it, it's it's always difficult for, for me. And, and I just I, I, I just wish that the world, that's my biggest, the saddest thing is that not everybody got the opportunity to experience such a giver. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, when I tell you this, this man gave so much quietly, uh, and he never allowed his mystery to get in the way of his giving spirit. He passed on so many, so much information. And I don't think as an artist, I would, I would be, you spoke about, you know, how, um, you know, you're confident yeah, yeah. and you don't, Prince, Prince affirmed a lot for me. He, he would always let me know when I was doing a great job. Nice. And how proud he was of me, of me, and that's why I can walk so confidently. 
And you, you talk about kind of the personal relationships, whether it's family or friends or, and, and the people you meet on th in these journeys. I mean, I noticed you, you spent some time with uh, President Obama the other day. And I mean, uh, I, I don't know if you showed the film to them or not, but there was a great ceremony. I saw the amazing photo of Octavia losing her mind yeah. <laughs> in the best possible so way. So beautiful. Uh, you've probably met them a couple times by now. You performed for them, yeah. I right? Yes. Uh, and talk about just a leader. Yeah. You know, this man has done so much for this country and history will, will show uh, this as well. But he's done so much for women, uh, women in STEM as well. Um, he's such a forward thinker and a broad thinker. You know, he's he's for all people and not just the one percent, as we know, but he's he's helped a lot of minorities. He's just pardoned over, you know, hundreds of, of people yeah. and, and uh, from from prison on you know, his criminal justice reform um, uh, program, and his dedication to uh, just being on the right side of history is so remarkable. And the first lady as well. I mean, she's done so much to help educate young girls, 62 million girls. That's been her mission to get them education. And I've been helping in her re reach that goal. Both of them are just good human beings, you know, and they want the best and they've helped move this country forward. And and I'm just so happy that I had the opportunity to perform and, and help campaign and, you know, early on in his presidency. Um, and I'm forever indebted and just thankful yeah. that they're waking up every single day figure, trying to figure out how can we help bring people together? You know, how can we build a bridge, not a wall? And they're like that, you know, behind the scenes and, and, and in, front of, in front of the scenes. I mean, you're clearly passionate as, as they are and just also in terms of just frankly at its root, making the world a little bit of a better place. And you alluded to some interesting issues early on, which is like young women to this day, um, you know, especially in entertainment industries are just generally defined by their sexuality in terms of um, just how they're expected to dress and carry all, uh, themselves in relation to other men. I'm curious for you as someone who's like grown very successful mm -hmm. and gained this degree of celebrity, mm -hmm. do you feel like sexism, racism is mitigated at all as you kind of gain more quote unquote power? Do you feel that kind of stuff touching you in your, in your, cause you're, you're, you're in a rarefied position. You're obviously sure. in a privileged position, but I would imagine that these things still in your day to day. Oh yeah. You see it oh, and you feel absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a businesswoman, so I have to go in a lot of these rooms and I'm the minority. You know, there are no women and no women of color. Barely. Uh, I started an organization um, because of this, this this issue, and it's called Fem the Future. And Fem the Future is led by progressive millennials, grassroots, uh, progressive millennials who will be helping advance the careers of more women uh, in music, in film, in media, in tech. And on the music side of things, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but there are female producers, music producers. Mm -hmm. Since music has existed, only six women have been nominated, and that's the Brits and the Grammys combined. None of these women, no woman has ever won an award for music production. Wow. And I think that's sad. Yeah. And I know that there are women out there, like Grimes, like there's so many FKA Twigs. Um, there's so many women who have contributed to music and film. You know, if you even think in the film world, how many music, I mean, how many film producers are women? 
you know, even directors. Yeah. You know, you can count on our hands, right? So for me, it's about allow, letting, pulling together our collective voices and letting our collective voices be heard. We're here. You know, I think that we have to actively film the future. If you walk into a boardroom or a room in film or in music or whatever it is, any company, and the male to female ratio is more in favor of, of, of the male, you have to film the future. Yeah. You have to hire more women. You have to include us in these conversations. The world is better. If you think about NASA, if they didn't have those women in those rooms, John Glenn would not have made it to space. We would not have made it on the moon without Catherine and all the women, the human computers, because uh, men didn't want those jobs. They looked at those as secretarial you know, positions. Yeah. It was the women who did the math and the work to get us into space. So when we're at it, we achieve the extraordinary. Without us, we degradate. We don't, we, we don't, we don't move forward. Yeah. So we have to just know that, breathe that, and feel that. And I know that. I've experienced it before, and I'm still experiencing it. Well, adding you to the podcast today has made this podcast better. Thank you. <laughs> so there's evidence to that. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm such a fan of yours, and it's been so, so thrilling to get to see you in these two remarkable films performances. And I, I hope this is the start of a, of a great acting career. I know it is. Well, thank you um, so much. Thank hope, you for your support. Of I course, really appreciate of course. it. As, as, a, as, you know, as a fellow ally, it's, it's important uh, that we come together. And no matter, you know, at the end of the day, we all bleed the same color. And I think that's what this, these films remind us. We need each other. Absolutely. You know, we really honestly do. And, and we have to stop being so hard on each other as well, you know, because we're all a part of the American story. The human uh, race, only one race, the human race. So let's run it together. There you go. Moonlight, Hidden Figures, check it out. Janelle Monet, uh, thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much. Remember to go check out Moonlight and Hidden Figures starring Janelle Monet. Okay, moving on, guys. Our next conversation of Happy, Sad, Confused is Damien Chazelle. This is a filmmaker. I mean, to say he's on the rise is is, is a little disingenuous because he's already risen. I was going to say, he's he's there. He's there. Um, you know, uh, Whiplash and now La La Land. La La Land is uh, the film everybody's been talking about for months, and it's now out in theaters. It stars uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. It's going to get a slew of Oscar nominations, and it very well may take the pr top prize. Um, and Damien is, um, you know, he's a, he's a very, um, well, you know, like Janelle in some ways, like very poised and kind of belies his years. He's, he seems like an old soul, and like his Influences, in fact, are um, you know the, he, he doesn't reference '80s movies or '90s movies. He references you know '40s and '50s um, you know um, European films. Like he, he's 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 a smart dude, and um, I was thrilled to have him on this show because uh, this movie is uh, fantastic from its opening sequence yeah. um, on the freeway to its bittersweet climax. We don't want to spoil anything, but um, he certainly knows how to end a movie. I don't know. Oh, you remember the end of Whiplash yes. too? That like crazy like. 15 minutes yes, sequence. Like yeah. Yeah. Um, and in a similar way, I think. The end of this movie was. Uh, right? Incredible. Favorite scene in the film? Do you have a favorite? Um, it's interesting. It's a musical because I saw it again over the weekend. And this is not a criticism. It doesn't have a ton of musical numbers. It has, no. like, has like seven or eight, I think. Um, but, I would, but they come at like the right time. Yeah. The scene, I the two, the ending. Yeah, the ending is amazing. amazing. And then the scene where uh, they're 
walking out of the party and yeah. they start. It's kind of like when they start to yeah. fall for each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some nice. And they put tap shoes on and I'm like, here we go. This was made for me. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you, Damien Chazelle. Yes. Any movie with a tap scene, I'm like, yeah. In. It's a, you know, and, and people have said it. It's kind of cliche to say, but it's true, I think, you know, in these uh, uh, times when like it feels like the world is, is crashing and then. And uh, collapsing around us, um, it's good to have a, a, a really a solid piece of entertainment that makes you feel good and, um, you know, has some song and dance There's to it. There's a lot of nods to uh, Crazy Stupid Love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's basically a shot-for-shot shot remake A lot of, of Easter eggs yeah. for and, the Crazy Stupid Love fans. And Gangster Squad, their other collaboration. Oh, my People God. People forget. This is their third. Wow. Yeah. It's the beginning of a long and beautiful friendship. All right. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't want any more? You good no. with it? Okay. Quit while you're ahead, <laughs> yeah. according to Sammy. Yeah. This is it. This Let's is the last it. Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling Until movie. Sorry, for guys. For like 40 years. Oh, that's going to be so poignant. Yep. Okay. That's right. It'll be a Nancy Myers film. Oh, my God. Never mind. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of great filmmakers like Nancy Myers, yes. here's here's uh, Damien Chazelle, uh, a filmmaker with a very bright future. Uh, and, the, and really, the future is now, thanks to a movie like La La Land. Go check it out and enjoy this conversation. Thanks for making the time today. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this one. Does that get tiring oh, to hear from people being like, this movie, I'm in love with this movie. This movie oh. has changed my life. I mean, that I guess that doesn't get less uh, important for a filmmaker to hear, but does it? Does something get diluted in the process of hearing that over and over again over a couple months? No, no, not at all, because it, it always remains slightly shocking and bracing in the moment. So it kind of... Uh, I don't know. It's 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 it certainly hasn't gotten old yet. I'll, well, I'll, I'll tell you that. I mean, it'll never get old, but it hasn't lost its. Uh, it, no, it hasn't felt diluted. Well, it, it is a curious thing for a filmmaker, and you've experienced this especially on the last two films, where you go from kind of like zero to sixty, right? Like, I mean, I remember I was at Sundance when Whiplash premiered that night, and suddenly you have this kind of secret thing or whatever that people mm -hmm. just very few people have seen, and then all of a sudden everyone's talking about it, and mm -hmm. a very similar kind of phenomenon happens on La La Land. Um, can you give me a sense of like, do you like, do you have dreams and nightmares going into a premiere? Like, what what are oh, your yeah. expectations? Nothing like, terrifies me more than any screening, you know. Um, but certainly, certainly, if it's the first or one of the first times you're ever showing it to an audience, that that night at Sundance, I was terrified, and and I I don't think professionally I've ever been as terrified as I was when um, when we premiered this movie because this what? movie yeah, this movie had one? taken so long to get made, you know, it had been kind of swirling through my head for six years, you know? And so when you talk about that kind of idea of a movie being this like, until you show it to the world, this kind of private thing that only a few people know about, this movie definitely really felt like that. I mean, for, for five or six years, it felt like only four or five people, you know, knew about it. And then, you know, once you make it, obviously everyone you're making it with is part of that group, but it never lost that sense of feeling deeply personal, deeply private, deeply kind of um, I guess fragile as well, the way that something, if, if something's that intensely private feels, you know, I had just no idea how the world would, re would respond. And with a musical, you really are kind of going out um, and, and wearing your heart on your sleeve. Totally. Well, so what, what is the fear then beyond just like a quote unquote bad review or bad reception? Like what, is there a specific like um, reception or response that you were worried about getting with this one? Um, yeah, no, there's always the nightmare scenarios, you know, of like, uh, 
It's like, uh, you know, a, a mass exodus from the theater and, you know, seat flaps, you know, g going so loudly that you can't hear the dialogue and, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and then uh, and then devastating critiques and, uh, you know, yada, yada. I mean, it, it kind of the, the 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 nightmare scenarios can extend from the plausible to the to the probably not plausible, but right. everything seems equally plausible and equally terrifying on the eve of like a big premiere, for me at least. What's the high point as we sit here right now? It hasn't been released to the public yet, um, but you have screened at festivals and you've, you've heard from critics and you've heard from, you know, the likes of Tom Hanks <laughs> talking about how much that, they that love was, this movie. That was, that was, I mean, that might be the high point. That was certainly a high point. I mean, it's, it's uh, I guess the high point is when is any variant of people connecting to the movie, yeah. right? So it's so that you know that can range from getting to meet like a hero of mine, like Tom Hanks, who's you know talking to you about your movie and has seen it and liked it. Like this that was alone, over at Telluride, right? That was at Telluride, yeah. and that alone was. Uh, I mean, so that that was pretty early in our. We had just world premiered at Venice, and then just hopped over to Telluride the next day. So that was really early on. That was pretty bracing. Um, but any kind of version of that, of just sort of, you know, uh, of having it connect with someone or connect with a group of people, um, which, uh, yeah, has been happening at these, at these festivals and screenings. It's, uh, as I said before, it never stops being yeah. surprising and, and, and amazing. So what do you, what do you love or, or if there are things to hate in terms of movie musicals? Like, or is there something in that? I mean, because there are very various different types, obviously, and different treatments of it. What are the things that, that you respond to? What are the things that you don't respond to in, in kind of the classics that we've seen over the years? Yeah, I, I have a very, um, I know I have a very sort of kind of almost strict set of guidelines for myself when it comes to sort of uh, whether how to do a musical or the musicals that I like and the rules that they follow. Um, and that would seem very limiting and restricting, but um, but to me, I actually think of it as as you know, it's not so much about rules as it's about you know really preserving what's at the heart of the genre. I think, and and uh, and everyone has their own opinion. I think of what's at the heart of the genre, but to me, it really is nothing more than the idea that that ordinary movie grammar or movie logic uh, gets upended by emotion. Um, and, uh, so I think there are movies that aren't musicals that are more like musicals than some musicals are, you know, I so think, you I mean think like heightened uh, realities well, or it, it's not, it's not just about heightened reality. It's about, it's about characters feeling so much that they, that they create the reality, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so it's not about, it's not about doing it with a wink. It's about, you know, it's about that kind of, I mean, you see it in, a lot of silent movies, you see it in like Frank Borzage movies, you see it in Murnau movies, you see it in Chaplin. Um, and, uh, and of course you see it in, in, you know, the classic musicals. Um, but it's that idea of if you feel enough, if you are in love enough or, or happy enough or sad enough, um, specifically in the case of, of a musical, you break in a song, but right. to me, it's, it's a bigger idea than that. It's the idea of, um, you know, what does it mean to break in a song? Well, it means that, that, you know, this invisible, orchestra is coming out of nowhere to accompany you, it means that you are abandoning the or ordinary rules of reality or movie logic, which ordinarily try to reflect reality. Sure. Um, and so that's why to me musicals are different from just kind of pure fantasy or, or, uh, or anything like that, because musicals exist more or less in the real world, but they jump a register. And, and that requires a huge leap for an audience. It's why musicals are 
divisive, you know, and it's sure. why uh, you either go uh, with or it or you divisive, don't. Or, 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 exact, yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and the movies require you to make that leap. And I love actually the audacity of that. I fell in love with musicals when I realized that they were the most audacious mainstream movies that you could ever make. Um, and I know Umbrellas of Cherbourg is, yeah. is a, a huge influence on this one, which I only watched actually just last night for the first time. Oh, really? And it, 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 I and wish I could watch that for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> when did you first see it? Um, on a like beat up VHS tape back when I was maybe 18. Wow. Yeah. So, and and that was, and I talked to Emma about this when she was on the podcast too. I mean, you screen this, I think, for everybody just mm-hmm. to put a, as a guidepost. As yeah. a, as this is kind of a feel of what we're trying to go for, yes. Is there anything in in the modern spectrum that, you, that was as influential as that in the last 20, 30 years? Or, is it, or was that really your... Um, uh, no, no, there is. But again, I would say, especially in the modern spectrum, I would say it wasn't music. It's not musical, it wasn't yeah. musicals. Yeah. No, it was uh, movies that, again, I think revel in... Movies that revel in being movies and, mm. and the way that musicals can allow you to do. Movies that are about taking advantage of the form, milking the medium for, you know, all it's got. Um, movies that feel made for a big screen, not yep. a small screen. Um, and uh, But for me, yeah, I mean, that's everything from from uh, from Tarantino to Leos Carax to, you know, Arnaud Desplechins to Wong Kar Wai to P.T. Anderson right. to Altman to Scorsese and whatnot, you know. Um, there's, you know, it's a wide range of, uh, of filmmakers and film styles, um, but it's that idea, I guess, again, of like letting letting emotion, letting a certain kind of love, whether it's a love between people or a love of movies themselves, letting that love just infect every frame sure. of the movie and, again, dictate the the grammar of it. Uh, these are all, you know, all the movies that I screened for the cast and crew. We started off with Umbrellas of Cherbourg because I wanted that to, like, set the tone. But mm-hmm. at, thereafter, you know, I screened some other musicals, some non-musicals. But the through line to me was that they were all, when you, when you really look at them, more or less crazy movies, like more or less mentally ill movies because <laughs> that's what I think uh, it's all about, you know? It's yeah. about not being hemmed in by um, by a certain kind of restraint. Well, certainly, yeah, as, as a fan myself, I always w- love an audacious failure, quote-unquote failure, more than, <laughs> than yeah. a safe film, Yeah, whether it's like Cloud Atlas or, or <laughs> yeah. Kevin Costner's The Postman. Like, yeah. I like just yeah. like, go, go for it. If you're going to do it, just do it. Yeah. Um, this in this one, as you as you well know, I mean, for good or for bad, because your name has kind of become kind of a bigger thing in recent years. We knew different casting permutations of this, right? Yeah. So, I'm, what I'm curious about is like so this was at one point going to be with, with Miles Teller and uh, Emma Watson. Yeah. Was that a much different film? Was that like a different iteration of the film? Did the, did the casting change yeah. the content of the film? For it you? did a little bit, but I mean, I, I think the uh, they the, the I think the one thing to maybe kind of uh, uh, correct about that whole, you know, the whole the whole storyline yeah. is that um, you know that iteration of the film technically only existed for like a very fleeting moment, right? <laughs> In the sense that the problem with this movie was that it's a two, you know, it's a, I mean, it's a whole ensemble movie, but at its core, as a love story, it's a two-hander, and so you have to find what that balance is. And we kept it kept feeling like we were sort of like you know. Uh, um, it was almost like whack-a-mole where you'd like, you know, you solve one problem and it creates yep. another problem. So in our case, we'd cast one role just as the other role would drop out or, 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 you know, scheduling would dictate that something had to change or whatever. Um, and then we'd go and, you know, refill that role just as the other role that we thought we had in the tank would, you know, uh, uh, change on us as well. So it was, it was this constant, um, and you know, it's, it's, it's nobody's, it's nobody's fault. I still remain, you know, I, 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 
I'm a you know huge fan of Emma Watson and, and Miles Teller. I had the you know just one of the best times in my life working on Whiplash with him. He's a phenomenal actor, um, and I hope to work with him again down the line. So it was it was much more this kind of happenstance of 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 a movie that took six years to get made and yeah. went through lots of different not just casting permutations but financing permutations, budget permuta- permutations. This was a, this was originally budgeted as a one million dollar movie, um, and uh, and uh, and we made it for for. For thirty million, so um, uh, so yeah, it was it was uh, that sort of iteration was a, you know as you can imagine a slightly younger uh, uh, version of the characters, which was a little closer to how I first wrote the script in like two thousand ten two thousand eleven, where Ryan and Emma were on my mind, but again Ryan and Emma at that at that age, you know, yeah. so that's so that's about six years ago. So once once today's Ryan and Emma came on, um, we did do some uh, some shaping of the characters to. Uh, age them up a little bit um, and uh, and add some backstory and kind of suit it to who they are now a little more. You're listening to Happy, Sad, Confused. We'll be right back after this. One of the consistencies, in, in, especially in the last two films, is you, you're excelling with I mean, throughout the, the entire narratives, but you end with some really powerful sequences at the end of both of your, your films. How early in the process do you think of the ending? Do you is that something that's helpful to kind of like build to? And and can you talk a little bit about just the importance of of ending a film in, in the right way? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it is something I think about a lot because it's it's. Uh, I mean, I guess I approach a lot of movies just as imagining myself as the audience, you know. And what what are the movies that have that have shaped me the most? What are the movie going experiences? Again, if you think of it as as, a, as an art form really designed for a theater and a theatrical experience, what are those experiences that have touched me the most? Um, and I do think it's important to kind of, uh, I think in a weird way, the, the, the most important things in any movie are the, you know, two seconds uh, uh, right as the lights, you know, two or three seconds right as the lights come down, the first sound or image that you see that's yeah. gonna set the tone for the entire film. And then the last couple seconds that you leave with, um, and uh, um, and I forget, you know, I, th- I think it might have been Howard Hawks or someone who said some, you know, more eloquent variation of that, you know, that 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 it, in order to be a good movie, it's got to have a, you know, a good opening, good ending, and then just no bad scenes, right? You know? <laughs> um, or it's like three good scenes, no bad scenes. Yeah, exactly. um, but the, you know, th- that idea that you kind of uh, you 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 know, obviously you want a whole movie to be a kind of continuous experience, but to really be thinking of it like a, like a, um, like something that has ebb and flow and that has to have rhythm and that yeah. has to kind of cascade. And so you really have to think about what are you, what are audiences sort of, you know, uh, what's the wave that is kind of, you know, going to be kind of carrying the audience out of the theater once the movie ends. And yeah, that's sort of, in some ways, the most crucial thing. Sure. So can we talk, go, going back a little bit, just growing up, um, the first couple films that really just blew your brains out in terms of just <laughs> like made you, you know, think of it as an art form, think of it as something to even, whether it was as something you want to pursue or just something that was special to you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, my earliest memories of, I mean, I've wanted to, to do movies since I can remember, um, but uh, but I began my kind of way into movies as like a, you know, little, little, little kid was drawing and watching Disney movies and, uh, wanting to be Walt Disney basically. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have, you know, very vivid memories of, uh, 
watching Cinderella on VHS and seeing The Little Mermaid in the movie theater and uh, uh, seeing Peter Pan, uh, uh, Peter Pan in the movie mm. theater and and um, um, and just the kind of uh, I guess something about those colors, especially that color palette of, of some of those Disney animated movies, and also just the uh, the mix of music and emotion, just still. I think has never quite left me entirely. I don't think of them as, you know, children's films. I think of them as just great films, period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, I, but, I, but I sort of became, partly as a result of those movies, just a voracious movie uh, watcher and movie lover. Um, and uh, certainly when it comes to musicals, you know, I, I was a little bit later to, to sort of really fall, fall in love with musicals, but... Um, but some of those early Fred and Ginger movies, Swing Time and Top Hat, you know, kind of watching those for the first time in in their entirety mm. um, was just was really eye opening. And, and then and then going back to rewatch Singing in the Rain, which I'd seen as like a kid, and you know, I guess enjoyed because I thought you were supposed to enjoy it, but hadn't you know, it, it hadn't cut through to me. And then just being a little bit older, kind of being a little more excited about the idea of a musical and watching it again and, and, and realizing that it's just the most perfect, joyful, um, uh, movie ever made, you know, and, totally. um, and of is also in that category. So, so certainly, I mean, you know, this movie, La La Land is definitely informed by a lot of kind of key, you know, mind blowing experiences that I've had, uh, watching a film. Did growing up, and I know you had some, you know, you were credited as a screenwriter on Ten Cloverfield Lane. Like, did did genre, did whether sci-fi or action or whatever, have a strong influence on you as a kid? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I loved. Uh, I mean, I think part of the reason why between my Disney period and my musical period, uh, uh, I was not, uh, you know, I was I wasn't watching musicals that much was because I I really liked movies where you know people got killed and monsters ate people and stuff like that. So I think. Um, um, no, so I I I I loved uh, and still do love genre film and um, 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 and I, and you know I, I think uh, Hitchcock and and Spielberg and um, people like that it was it was it was just uh, uh, in a way again I I now don't think of it as that different from from making a musical it's the same sort of basic conception of cinema which is as a vehicle for emotion and right. and uh, and to try to, um, you know, not just passively tell a story, but to try to really kind of uh, immerse an audience into that story and produce an emotional uh, uh, reaction that's hopefully, um, you know, uh, uh, hopefully overwhelming. Right. You know, you kind and, of and- whether it's to make them afraid or make them sad or make them happy. I, I really kind of like the idea of movies uh, creating a really tremendous, overwhelming emotional reaction. And hopefully the challenge then is to get at that without having to resort to cheap tricks, without right. having to kill a kitten, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> is, um, I'm curious, because like, you know, when I think of, when I, and I read up on, on the, what people have been saying about you, especially since Whiplash and this, it's like, you know, I wonder how you're kind of dealing with kind of the narrative around you. I mean, you're still a very young guy, and I and I think back to like when M Night Shyamalan, you know, like had his first few mm-hmm. films, and Newsweek put him on the cover, and it was, it was the next Spielberg, right? Mm-hmm. And similar kind of superlatives have been assigned to you at the at this age. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm curious, like, do you look at sort of the arc of other filmmakers' careers in terms of helping dictate your own choices and seeing sort of the pitfalls and the and the, and the right ways to go for a young filmmaker? Or is it all kind of just instinct? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I guess it's a little bit of both, you know, because at the end of the day, you can only be yourself. Uh, um, um, I, I, uh, but I, but I, I, yeah, I love movie history, you know, so I just kind of, I, 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 I've read up on all the sort of great directors' careers or directors who, who I admire and their, their careers. And, and, um, um, and if you do that, you can't help but sort of, you know, compare yourself as the sure. benchmarks of your life pass, <laughs> um, you know, and find that you're always coming up short <laughs> in some way or another. So, um, well, Orson Welles is always the jerk in that equation that, that ruined that, it for everybody. That guy's such an asshole. Just really <laughs> ruined it for us really all. Did. Right from the start. He created a real complex for filmmakers ever since <laughs> 1941. We've still been dealing with that. Um, and then dealing with the end of, of a life that maybe didn't end as happily as most filmmakers would want it to. It's, it's, it's right, both ends of right. the spectrum. Yeah, no, he, he um, <laughs> It's, yeah, his career does cast like this this immense shadow over I think every every director, um, no matter what style um, that's come since. But but I think it's it's um, you know it's it, it, and again it's sort of looking at people's careers. It's also it's also obviously you know um, trying to trying to learn from them and you know uh, uh, um, and sort of. Uh, Engage in what they're doing and their style, and I, I, I've always kind of loved that idea. Um, and again, this is another case where I'm gonna like misquote someone or, <laughs> or mis, misattribute a quote, but I think it was maybe Godard or someone who, um, um, or no, maybe it was about Godard. Anyway, they were talking about Breathless and this idea that you know Breathless was kind of trying to be a uh, was uh, you know those French New Wave guys trying to do a you know Warner Brothers uh, gangster kind of movie, and um, and completely failing at it right. and the failure is breathless you know and so the <laughs> you know the, the the idea that you you uh you try to be something but at the end of the day you're old, you're going to be and actually you hope you're going to be yourself right. you know and that and that um and that you could perceive that as a lack of matching something or a failure of some kind but 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 that's where actually the real you know, interesting stuff happens. Well, it's true. I mean, the the general, like, it seems like the way Hollywood is built is to replicate past successes. And you as an artist and as a filmmaker, that's the last thing you want to do is to... Right, you never want to replicate. You want to, you want to... Uh, want to innovate or... Yeah, or, you want you want to learn from and engage with the history of, of, of the medium. Film has a really rich history, even at a still very young age. Um... Uh, but I think it's it's by being aware of that history that you can properly push it forward because sure. you can find you can find you can find what avenues of the medium you want to update and you want to extend and yeah. what what channels of it still seem fertile and untapped. So are there in terms of like the opportunities that are at your feet now? I know you're developing your own material. I think there's this Neil Armstrong project you're mm-hmm. still potentially working on, right? Um, that being said, I'm sure you're getting very interesting, or maybe not so interesting, offers. I mean, are they, are are is there a temptation or an interest in getting you know the hundred million dollar toolkit of a franchise or even more of a you know if Lucasfilm comes, are you interested in doing a Star Wars film for the sake of getting to play in that sandbox? Um, I mean, I, I've definitely learned to uh, um, like never say never because it's it's also this sort of, I mean. To be in any position where where you get to have any choice at all over what you do, you know, that's not just uh, that's not just um, a matter of of you know paying the bills or taking what's offered to you because it's the only thing being offered to you, like right. uh, which is 
which is still, you know, the, 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 that that idea of really having to rely on on what comes in and, and nothing else is, uh, or what you create and nothing else because there's nothing, there's no real choice and you don't have that much control over it. It's still, it's still how I, um, it, it's you know, it's, it's how most of my career, you know, uh, was or has been. It right. still feels very recent to me and very new and strange that I get to have any kind choice. of choice, yeah. you know. And so, uh, so I'm cognizant of that and feel very grateful for that. And so never. Never want to take anything for granted. I mean, I guess the the hope, my hope is that, you know, as long as I, for the the longer that I can just make stuff I want to make, as simple as that sounds, um, uh, and have the freedom to sort of make it my way, uh, the the better. But, you know, you never know how long that's going to last. So you want to kind of... um, you really want to milk it while using your power for good to make the personal stuff. Yeah. You want to try to, um, um, I also think anytime you do make a movie, you want to try to make it as though it's your last movie that you're ever going to make, you know, that, that to never assume you're going to get the opportunity again, just assume that you will be unhirable (laughs) after an an impermanent director jail after it. And so you might as well go to town. You might as well put every inch of yourself in it and be able to look at it and go, okay, I'll never get to make another movie, but at least that, that movie I made there at least reflects enough of who I am or who I was at that point that I can be, I can be okay with that. It's kind of like what, what I feel like, you know, back in the day, what Coppola was doing with all his zoetrope films back at whether it was right. places in the heart or, or one from the heart rather, yeah. et cetera. And they were all like audacious and maybe yeah. on paper crazy, but he was going for it. They were, they were again, fall into that category of crazy movies yeah. that I just, uh, uh, that I just, uh, I just love. What was, looking back, what's the most momentous phone call that you've had in your career? Was there like one that kind of you feel like changed the course of your professional life that you can think back to? Getting um, a project greenlit or a, or a casting or something like that. I mean, do you, do you look at like the transition with Whiplash or just getting Whiplash made after after the short or after mm. some, or after the film screened? I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like for you, I, I you know, I can put the narrative on you and say what, I, what seems like the markers. But what, what's for in your own head is kind of like the big transition or the big kind of like I'm a grown-up filmmaker now. Um, I think, I think uh, well, no, th- 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 this certainly wasn't that. But, um, but I do, I mean, I do think of like one phone call that really sort of depending on how, depending on how it went could have, I like look at it as this moment where, you know, life sort of splits into two rows sure. and it really depends which one you take, and it's it's a phone call I'll, I'll always be grateful for for that reason. It was uh, a phone call from J.J. Abrams when I was um, uh, when I was writing uh, at Bad Robot, and I was working on uh, on what became Ten Cloverfield Lane, um, and uh, and there was uh, you know there was some there was talk at that point of because um, I'd made this Whiplash short, and so there was this kind of suddenly this opportunity to maybe uh, to maybe. Uh, have a chance to direct that film. Um, and at the same time, Whiplash was, we were trying to get Whiplash financed, right. you know? And um, and so, like, I, you know, as you can hopefully see from the the finished film, I thought, you know, 10 Cloverfield Lane was a really cool project, and I thought, um, and, I, and it would be an amazing opportunity. Um, but I kind of, you know, something, you know, told me deep down that it wasn't, like, it wasn't, that wasn't meant for me. That mm-hmm. wasn't what I was meant to, um, to do if it was choosing between that and Whiplash, right. you know, and uh, um, but obviously Whiplash was this like this completely unassuming like there, there was nothing to say that that was going to be anything. It was Again, this jazz, on paper, that's this jazz drummer script. Been a five yeah. Academy Award nominations, um, <laughs> and you know, as opposed to this Paramount backed, you know, studio backed yeah. um, 
movie. Um, and uh, but I just had a feeling that someone could could really crush it on Ten Cloverfield Lane in a way that I couldn't because I, I didn't quite have that connection. And I think that is what Dan Trachtenberg wound up doing so brilliantly um, and elevating that movie and making it something where you can tell the filmmaker was passionate about it yeah. um, uh, in the way that great genre films are. Um, and I, uh, but I just didn't have that. And yet it felt like absolutely the, the logical, practical, good career step thing for me to do would be to to say yes, absolutely, to this opportunity and to kind of put a hold on Whiplash because theoretically I could make that any time. Sure. And JJ called me up um, and, uh, and literally just said to me, hey, you know, I know you're, you're kind of grappling with these two, uh, um, you know, these two things, and I just, but I just want to say, um, you know, even though obviously I'm, I, have an, I have a vested interest in 10 Cloverfield Lane, and I think, you know, it wasn't called that at the time, but, you right. know, and, and, I, and I think, uh, I really think it could be a really cool project. I'd love to, you know, find a way to make it work. Um, I also think that, that Whiplash uh, is going to be, you know, amazing or could be amazing, and, uh, and if that's where your heart is at, you should go do that, and that's, you know, um, um, and that I'll that's support. A, I'll support you either way. And that's and a huge gift from another artist. To have yeah. you know, to have someone of that stature yeah. calling me. You know, I, I was you know this 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 kid, and 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 um, and you know to have him just call me directly and just talk almost director to director as right. though we were peers um, was this. You know, that alone was a mind blowing thing for me. But the fact that he kind of gave me permission at that moment right. to really follow my heart. Um, is uh, was just this incredibly generous, grateful thing that, again, I, I think I owe as a result a lot to just that phone call and the fact that he did that. Yeah, and every day on all 19 days on the set of, of Whiplash. I you, had you, him you, to thank. You could, you could just <laughs> raise your hand and be like, J.J. Abrams said I should be here. Damn it, <laughs> do the shot again. Do, do another take. The, then again, I doubt Dan had much longer to shoot a, That's true. You know, a <laughs> 10 Cloverfield Lane. You know, that was a scrappy movie as well. So, totally. um, But it, it was that kind of thing where I look back and I'm like, yeah, no, it feels like I was meant to go off and do Whiplash. Yeah. Dan was meant to be the one to do uh, to do Cloverfield. Um and uh, and I feel like we both got to make the. I don't want to speak for him, but yeah, I feel yeah. like we both got to make the movie we wanted to make in the way we wanted to make it. Mm -hmm. And and um, and that's really lucky for both of us because yeah. that doesn't happen. I, I, and I just watched Whiplash the other day, and I, st I still possibly positively adore that film. And it's uh, well, it's sort of a genre film too. I mean, yeah, really, I mean, yeah. it, it, that was kind of a, it, it. It might seem funny on paper, you know, that that I was sort of, you know, that it was like uh, a kind of. Uh, you know, like the sort of bad robot uh, uh, genre project versus a jazz drummer Sundance no, it, indie. It but, plays but as a it's, thriller. It's a, but in a yeah. way, I thought of it as somewhat similar, somewhat <laughs> yeah. similar projects. Yeah. Plus, you've got people quoting "Not quite my tempo" for the next few generations. Hopefully, <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> so, well, that was the mantra of my of my high school experience. Is what I was told uh, every every uh, every five minutes of my time on a drum kit during those years. So I uh, um, so I'm somewhat. <laughs> Somewhat glad to pass that one on. There you go. <laughs> um, well, congratulations on, on 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 what's an amazing start to a career, and I can't wait to see what's coming up for you. Um, Thank you. And uh, congratulations again on specifically on La La Land, which I know. I mean, oh, some people have been have been saying like <laughs> maybe a lot to put on a film, but like the world kind of needs a film like La La Land right, <laughs> right now. But um, I kind of believe that myself and it's one that i'm going to return to a lot this uh this season well thank you that that, that means <laughs> that means the world and it's and it's again it's uh, uh it's a crazy thing to uh to hear it means the world but it's 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 so surprising again that you know the movie's connecting um um in a way that i always dreamed of but i i you know couldn't really 
think it would. So um, anyway, thank you. Yeah, thanks for your time. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs> this episode of Happy, Sad, Confused was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.